Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Hey guys, you're listening to After Party Pod, the podcast about addiction and recovery, which I hope you know because you were listening to it, so you downloaded it. Yep, that's true. I'm a little rusty. I haven't recorded one of these intros in a while. I think I told you guys I've just had a flurry of kind of amazing sober people that I've been encountering that are great for the podcast, so I've just been banging them out, recording one after the other. So I've so many in the hopper, as they say, I hadn't recorded in a while. This is just, just, I'm giving an excuse for why I may not sound as professional as usual, which is hilarious because, you know, I do always sound so professional. After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, big addiction and recovery website that I happen to like because I happen to have started it. Podcasts, posts, every two weeks, that is every Friday, on the website, and it is also on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, but if you want to get the background of the guest and you want to know who is this person and how can I find them, you got to go to the site, After Party Magazine. On Fridays, you will find it, I'm even going to tell you this part, it's on the lower right part of the website. Click on Podcasts, You'll see the guest's face, click on podcast, and you'll be led to a page that has all the podcasts that have ever been recorded, and it's over 100 now. So do that. After Party is a part of RehabReviews.com, the world's largest source for rehab reviews. We have nearly 5,000 reviews. So if you are looking for treatment or a loved one is looking for treatment, that is the place to go. Full write-ups, all the information you could possibly want to know about up to nearly 5,000 rehabs. So let me talk now about my guest. His name is Luke Story, but it's not spelled like story that you read in a children's book or a short story collection. Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y. He's a former celebrity stylist, and now he's a life stylist. It's very different than being a Hollywood celebrity stylist. He's a public speaker. He's an entrepreneur. He's also the founder and CEO of School of Style, which is the nation's most prominent fashion school for stylists. So what we mean by life stylist is he is an expert on all the sort of healthiest things you can do. I met him And when I say met, I mean spoke on the phone to him a few months ago. He and I talk about this in the podcast, but I had to to find somebody who was into cryotherapy for the story I did on it for Vice. Connected to him, talked to him. I was like, this is an interesting guy. Didn't know he was sober. No idea. Then, was it last week or the week before, I was at my friend Jeff Kober's house. Jeff is previous podcast guest. He's also been on my other podcast, You've Got Issues. By the way, are you listening to my other podcast? It's called You've Got Issues with Anna David. I talk to guests about their pettiest issue, and we get to what's underneath there. It's really good. You can also find it wherever you found this. There is a website for it called Issues with Anna. Anyway, I digress. If you want to know about any of these things, by the way, sign up for AnnaDavidNewsletter.com. You'll get it all. And and a free ebook. Anyway, sorry, let me get back to the topic at hand. I was at Jeff Kober's for a group meditation. And, oh, yeah, anyway, I saw him at two Jeff Kober group meditation things. In passing, he mentions that he's sober basically two decades. I had no idea. So I invited him to come on this show, and he did, and it was a great conversation. You never know how these things are going to go. It was, you'll hear, and we talk about this at the end, I barely even talked. I didn't, once he got going, I didn't need to talk. 
guy is a great interview. And that's good to know since he has his own podcast. If you go to his website, LukeStory.com, you can find the podcast. You can find out about School of Style. You can find out about his lifestylist, about his speaking, about where to find him on social media. Like I said, you can also find that on After Party Magazine. I'm going to stop talking so that you can hear Luke's story. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton-y. I was on the, as I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? We literally just start like that cool. to the point that you could keep telling me about those headphones, but <laughs> but you don't need to. I do okay. want to know, though. Okay, so this is fun just because technically we just met and yet we spoke on the phone. That was, was that probably like a year ago? Uh, yeah, that was ironic that that ended up happening. Yeah, I know. Well, so what's funny is I was doing this story on cryotherapy for Vice and I posted on Facebook and I said, who knows about this? And a mutual friend messaged me right away and said, call my friend Luke. And I just reached out. And, you know, when you're doing stories like that, you have no idea how articulate the person's going to be, how much they know about the thing. And I was sort of blown away. You were just like, oh, well, I do this. And then, like, it's it's not as good as this. And and so that was interesting to me. And it's your whole thing. Yeah. that was, It was funny that you reached out to me. And also when we had the talk, I realized, I think halfway through, I was like, wow, I have way more information than she needs. She needs you like, did. You need like a couple sound bites. Yep. And I'm giving you the whole history of like, uh, you know, our evolution through <laughs> different climates and stuff. But that you know? was interesting. Yeah. And I of course, so. I didn't know at the time that this was like your whole life is based around things like that. I just thought you were really into crowd therapy, you yeah, know? Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? You know what my newest thing is? Because I, I forget what I told you, but I do a lot of just cold water immersion more than cryotherapy. You told me all about that. So yeah. I do a lot of ice baths. And yeah. I have a brother that lives here in L.A. He has a gym called Story Fitness down on Pico and Hauser. And um, we fashioned this ice bath situation out of a 200-gallon like feedlot trough, like a big metal galvanized trough. And then we installed an ice machine behind his gym to take ice baths. But it's so hot in LA that the ice machine kept burning out. You know, the motor kept dying because obviously it's hard to make ice when it's 90 degrees. So yet just yesterday we went to Sears down in the hood. <laughs> it's the only, oddly enough, the only Sears around here is like just. No, what about the one in um, right when you get off the freeway to go to Santa Monica? Is that gone? Oh, uh, well, I was coming from like Miracle Mile. So going down Crenshaw was the fastest. I was you know? just proud of myself. For I hadn't been down there in a long time. Yeah. I, I used to go down there a lot yeah we're um, gonna get into that but uh but anyway what we did i saw a guy on instagram or something who got one of those like lay down um like trunk freezers that you put in your garage people use them for hunting a lot like they'll store you know their meat in there and stuff that's my dad used to have one of those when i was a kid so we got one of those and what you do is you just set it on low and it just keeps the water at around 36 degrees and it doesn't form ice. It's meant to freeze things, but if you keep it on low, it just keeps the water cold all the time. So that's the new version of the ice bath, which I'm going to have installed tomorrow. I'm super excited. Oh, my God. Now, question. Did anyone but you and your brother do that crazy thing? Well, we've had some seminars there with uh, an outfit called the Wim Hof Method. Uh, Wim Hof has kind of become famous for doing these crazy feats of cold immersion. He holds, I think, the world record for the longest time in ice. And he's developed this whole system of healing uh, based on breathing technology and cold immersion. And so we had some trainers from his organization come in and do two seminars there at Story Fitness. So, yeah. So other people have done it, but I do it every morning after I work out. I work out at 7 to 8, and then I jump in there for 20 minutes and just freeze my ass off. And I live about a mile away. And by the time I get home, I mean, my teeth... I can't even do it, but they're literally like chattering. And then I jump in an infrared sauna for about 30 minutes and then I start my day. That's kind of my routine. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is ironic given that, you know, your life is built around like living to the optimum degree of health, right? And let's just imagine that before you got sober, that was not your goal. Oh my God. Polar opposite. You know what? I mean, I think I had... (laughs) ideas around that because I grew up, you know, I didn't really ever grow up. Maybe I'm starting to now, but um, when I was a kid, I lived in Northern California. And oh, me too. Oh, really? Where? 
Uh, Marin. Marin. Oh, what cool. About you? Santa Rosa, Sebastopol. Cool, yeah. Cool, My yeah. mom was from Berkeley, you know, born oh, and raised in Berkeley. Cool. Grew up in the 60s. So she, you know, we shopped at the health food store and we had, I mean, you know, our version of health at that time. Carob. Lots of carob. <laughs> yeah, totally carob. Yeah. 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 Carob and like carrot juice and like, you know, wheat germ and stuff like that. Did, like, did your mom do the Pritikin diet? No, I didn't. Oh, know that was about a that. total thing. Oh, really? Oh, it was awful. You had to eat like weeds and rocks. It felt like my parents, when I went to camp as a kid, I, we were normal junk food family, and then I come home, and it's gotten all like uh, wheats and grains. They pulled the old switcheroo on it you. It was awful. So I, you know, I grew up with that intention. I knew about yoga. I knew about meditation. I'd had some sort of interactions with spiritual teachers and things like that. So the whole time I, w- well, not the whole time, but I think like in my early twenties, I-, I wanted to be healthy, and I even when I was like using and drinking heavily. It's funny being in this neighborhood too, going to that maybe, but there used to be this spot on Hollywood Boulevard and I had this waiter job and I lived right behind the Chinese theater, right, right oh, down the street. Oh, literally right Yeah, on street. Orange, right yeah, there, one yeah. block away. And I would stay up all night, you know, and um, by unnatural means. And then I would stop at this place and get like bitter melon juice and wheatgrass juice and garlic juice and all these gnarly juices. And then I would go into my waiter job and just, I was totally insane, but I was always kind of into health. I just also did copious amounts of drugs. Did you <laughs> ever read Permanent time. Midnight? Uh, no, I didn't read it, but I saw the different movie mo- book is oh, so really? much better. But he and actually that is in the movie that he's shooting heroin and then doing like shakes, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. vegetable shakes. That's kind of the story, yeah. yeah. So what was the restaurant called? I wonder if I remember it. It's still there. It's called uh, Fabiola's Cafe. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh on wait, Vine and on Vine and uh, yeah, I, I and like Sunset. that place. Yeah, yeah, Italian good place. chicken. Yeah. So I yeah I would I would I mean poor Fabio the owner. I think he's since sold it, but he was such a sweetheart. I went back actually to make amends to him um, after, you know, I had just totally blown that job, obviously. And he was so sweet. He wrote me a letter of recommendation. Like oh. it was a couple years later, you know, I yeah. went and I was like, hey, dude, sorry. I like never showed up and was totally high while, while I was here. It was like total waste of space while I was your employee. But he was a real sweetheart. So I always have a good feeling about that despite some bad memories. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I had the polar opposite experience. I was an intern at a magazine. I, I think I need to vent this. It's interesting because I think I still have this resentment. And it was, I was 21, an intern at a magazine in San Francisco called Frisco, which is the worst name for a magazine ever. Yeah, because if you're from the city, as you, you call it up yeah. there, like if someone calls it Frisco, they're, they're a total like, oh, douche. You, you, they're like immediately disqualified from But they're a tourist. Th- yeah, exactly. But what about San Fran? Same, That's right? That's probably worse, yeah. It's, or at least it's, it's on par. It's the city, right? I mean, everyone calls it the, the city. The city, which didn't you not know that New York was the city yeah, that's when you were funny. growing when, up? When, yeah. yeah, when you go to New York, everyone's like, uh, what are you talking about? This is the city, you know? It's so funny, yeah. Go which to truthfully, the city. it kind of is. I mean, let's be fair. It is. It is. But your perspective, whatever. So I had this internship and I thought I did a good job. I decided to move to New York to to work at magazines and I wrote the editor in chief and I said, can I have a recommendation? She wrote me a letter because we didn't have email yet, which is insane, saying I could never recommend you because you weren't a good intern. And I, okay, so then this is how life works and it's so amazing. I moved to New York. I get an internship. I end up getting my first job back in San Francisco. Day two, I get her resume in the mail. She's like, I edited this magazine. It folded. Can I have a job? She, she was sending it to my boss. I opened the mail and he, I told him the story on the first day because I couldn't believe it. And he's like, I'm going to let you, as like your welcome present, write her the rejection letter. So, sorry, I'm totally segueing. <laughs> so I write her this rejection oh, letter man. and I, I'll never forget what I said. I was like, dear Leslie, uh, what a surprise to get your resume in the mail. We don't have any openings right now. We both know what a tough business this is. Best of luck in your job search. Isn't that evil? Oh, man. So satisfying. I know those things, though. It's the Course in Miracles says, you know, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And yeah. It's so tempting, the juice that you get from being right and punishing someone is very very tempting i recently actually <laughs> fell prey to that you actually and, randomly and told me this last week about an ex i sent an email to someone yeah. and like click send and i was like can i swear yeah of course i was like fuck why did i do that i immediately knew that i had just hurt myself you know and in the way that i've come to understand the universe and the world as being totally interconnected you literally can't flip someone off in your car without hurting your own spirit you know I do pretty well with it most of the time. I mean, I really do. I've I've grown a lot. I have a long way to go, but I've grown a lot where most of the time I'm pretty tolerant and forgiving of other people. It's um, been more challenging learning how to be so with myself. 
Yes. And I think, yeah, the first step is, is doing it with other people. Can I just say one thing? You can say whatever you want. I think I get off the hook with that particular act. I did say I might still have a resentment, and I did Google her recently to make sure she wasn't successful. Um, <laughs> but I will say oh, that that was a lesson for her. You oh, know? yeah, yeah. But, but I will say, like, you know, okay, I just had this thing where I hit my neighbor's car, but it was sort of her fault because she where she was parked. And I just decided it's just money. So I wrote her and I was like, Lisa, I, she didn't see. I was like, you know, I hit your car. I'm going to take care of it whatever. I felt high all day from doing this thing that I really didn't have to do. It really was, should be a conversation. It's so good. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I, I find in my life, like I get, I'm very happy and pleased with myself for doing something that like a normal good person should just do anyway. Yeah. You know, I'm not, and I'm not discrediting you or discounting that. Yeah. But it's like, I remember when I got sober, I was like, I fucking registered my car, man. You know it's like? Everyone's like, uh, yeah, dude, that's kind of what you're supposed to do. Do you right. want us to bake you a cake now or later? You right, know, right. I, but you know, totally. I'm I happy. I'm happy for you. And I celebrate your, your spiritual success there. Yeah. And it just felt good. You know, yeah, it does feel good. Um, and I remember when I, when I was still an outpatient rehab, my friend and I had to go get you aid regularly. And I remember we were, we came over and we were just like, we're here to get you aid. And we expected a medal. She was like, okay, cool. You're supposed to be here for your drug test. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, oh, my God, you just reminded me of something. When I was in treatment, the one and only time in 1997, thankfully the only time, that was like the worst place ever to be. Not because of the place, just because I was there. In L.A.? You know? Did no, you go this to is in Sebastopol. It's called Azure Acres, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We we have a review of it. Oh, really? We have reviews. Yeah, oh, yeah. no kidding. No yeah. one's ever heard of it. You're the first person I've ever met, so I never tell anyone yeah. if they haven't heard of it. But I went in there, and I had uh, detoxed myself from heroin using all sorts of different pills and Persian opium and all this weird stuff. And when I got in there, uh, I was just coming off alcohol and weed like at that moment. Right. You know, and I had been off crack and heroin for a week or something like that. And I got in and I started to feel better. And after like maybe six days, I got super, super sick. It was some weird sort of post detox detox. And they gave me a UA because they thought I had snuck dope in and then got dope sick. So they thought I was like staying well through the first week. And I was like, test me, motherfuckers, please. It's like the first time in my life or, you know, in God, however many years, 10 years, at least at that point that I had one sober breath. And I was like, test me 10 times, it on, please. They? Yeah. yeah, they did. And I was clean. It was great. But you think they'd know that that could happen a week later. It's so bizarre. That never happened to me before. But I had never, like in 10 years, I had never been stone cold sober. I always had something in me. But it was so weird because I had kicked heroin multiple times before that. And you're dope sick for however many days. And then you get better and better and better until you think you're better. And then you do it again <laughs> and right. get strung out again. But I had never had a delayed reaction. And still to this day, I have no clue. But it was the most sick I've ever been in my whole life drugs right. or not uh, I couldn't walk they had to carry me around and put me in the bath and I mean I was basically an invalid I was super sick totally weird the precursor to your many baths that you would take yeah no, no kidding yeah, <laughs> your yeah. Future. yeah so what made you go to rehab that time well you know that brings me back to our neighborhood here on Hollywood Boulevard it's yep. so funny I went and parked under the 24-hour fitness yep. there when I moved here in 1989, that was a huge hole. And it had been this from, you know, legend, Hollywood legend has it. It had been this crazy like drug prostitute hotel right there on the corner. That. Yeah. All the 80s guys would tell me about it. But it was a big hole. And I ended up, you know, moving, as I said, right behind the Chinese theater. And this is back in, you know, 89. So I got sober in 97. So for that, you know, six, seven years or whatever it was, this whole area, and I don't know if you lived here, but it was totally overrun with gangs and crack. Yeah, in the until early when? 90s. Okay, okay, yeah. Around the time I got sober, maybe by 99, 2000, I don't know what the police did, but they, they got it out of here for the most part. Yeah. But I was playing in a band, and we used to play at all these clubs down um, Hollywood Boulevard, actually right across the street. It's now a bank that used to be a nightclub I used to play at, and... Oh, my God. So this area has, like, so many not fun memories. Did you know you are certainly not the first person on this podcast to say that? Oh, man. Because it's like the den of iniquity around yeah, here. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. But, I mean, so I play these clubs, and you walk out, and, I mean, I'm not even – I won't exaggerate. I was going to say 10 guys, but maybe three to five guys would run up and spit crack out of their mouth, wow. you know, and sell you crack. I mean, it's like if you had any propensity toward addiction, that was not the neighborhood to live in, you know, so – uh, what had happened was I started getting these 
situations with my band where we'd get close to having some success, you know, and we'd like go into the studio. We got a little record deal and we were playing with some some great people. And I was friends with a bunch of people that were in huge, you know, international bands. And it's like we were poised for success and we just kept blowing it because everyone in this band it was six people and every single person was like a full blown alcoholic. There was three heroin addicts. There was one crystal meth freak there right. i think there's only one of us that was just an alcoholic and right. and he was a really bad alcoholic right. you know so um you know that was my dream when i moved here and that started to become so apparent um so that was more of the outside stuff it's like i was working as a waiter i was selling drugs and i couldn't even do those things right so eventually like, i was totally unemployable and I was selling mushrooms and selling weed out of this apartment down the street like it was 7-Eleven. I mean, I can't believe to this day I never got busted. It was, I think, just because there was so much crack in the neighborhood. Some, right, they were busy. Some, like, deadhead selling weed, like, behind the Chinese theater was not a threat. Were you a deadhead, too? I wore Birkenstocks from time right. to time. Did you, you didn't follow them or crazy I things I did like that. follow them around the West, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've been to quite a few shows. Sort of. I'm not a real deadhead. Like, no. I can't name, like, Jerry played, like, Sugary in 1976 at Winterland, and he hit this wrong note. I'm not that kind of a deadhead, but I was, like, super hippie, and, and that's one of the ways that I used, like, denial, especially about using heroin, because I smoked it. I was never a needle user. Right. Thankfully, God. And, uh... But I was like, oh, I just like smoke opium. You know, I thought I was like a hippie, but really I was a junkie. You know? Smoking opium sounds <laughs> It sounds really passable. Bad. It does no, sound bad to you, really? It sounds really bad. Oh, God, to me, I was like, that's just opium, you know? And I would tell well, people that if I got caught. Like yeah. someone would be over and they'd see my little setup. And I'm like, oh, it's just opium. It's no big deal. We're just chilling. It's very spiritual, you know? <laughs> but like, I, well, first of all, did you cry when Jerry died? That was, that, this is okay. a test of how big a deadhead somebody was. I did was. not cry. But you were affected. But I was bummed because that was one of those signals that the party was coming to an end. And, and those things were all, as I said, more outside circumstances where it was like I hadn't gotten arrested. I, ha I mean, I'd been robbed, but I hadn't been terribly beaten. I hadn't broken any bones. Like my family would still talk to me. I had an apartment barely. I mean, it was only $450 a month, so it couldn't have been that hard to keep. I hadn't had a car for years. But the outside was like, you know, about to crumble, but it was just... It was like the degree of self-loathing and self-hatred that I had was just unbearable because there was the spark of life in me. And I just knew it's not like, oh, I knew I was supposed to be president or a rock star, but I knew whatever I was put here to do was not being done and it was never going to get done. I had no idea what that was, but I just I had some like kernel of self-worth down there somewhere, some level of truth. And it just started to really hurt to the point where I could not numb that pain of being who I was, yeah. you know? And this is like, I mean, I still don't like this area. It's funny because years ago I moved into a house in the Hollywood Hills right up by the Hollywood Bowl. And it was like, it was such an amazing gift because I used to look up at those houses when I lived down here and just be like, oh, those, who are those assholes that live up there? How did they do that? You know, right. I don't even think I ever drove up there, went to anyone's house. I did not run in those circles. And so I'm up in that house looking down at the hood where I used to live, you know, yeah. and I and I still I was very happy and sober for a long time up there. But I have to drive back through Hollywood and Highland or Highland and Franklin. Those are like the areas where I would be out at nine in the morning, you know, buying more crack and just like, oh, it's so gross. Everyone's going to work. And yep. yeah, I would dress up like a homeless person so I didn't get robbed and. That's I would, an interesting I would, thing. Yeah, I would, I would, my, I didn't want to carry a weapon because I didn't want to get arrested and not be able to go home and use whatever I had just bought. So I would go right to the donut shop and I would get a hot coffee and I would carry that around and that was like my weapon, you know? <laughs> you mean that you could fling on somebody? Yeah, that I could throw in someone's face if they tried to rob me. The Wait. one time I didn't do that, I got robbed and they took my crack and that was very disappointing at the time. <laughs> so it was like, it was knowing that it was just... I don't know, the feeling of just shame. I think, you know, I've always had a lot of shame in my life from different experience. And it's just, I don't know, I was like born ashamed of who I am. Mm. And, um, and that just, I was using drugs to alleviate the feeling and the sense of shame, but it just compounded the shame, you know, just stack after stack after stack where it got to the point where it's just like, 
I could not stay clean for more than a few days. So I, the first time maybe I got strung out, I would kick opiates, you know, and then I would, I would only, you know, drink and smoke weed for a while. And then maybe a year would go by before I relapsed on opiates. And those, those windows started to get shorter and shorter and shorter right. where like I would kick, get well in three or four days, then go right back and get strung out again. And when that started happening, it was like, oh, this is not good because um, it also started to get uneconomical to be smoking it too, you know? So it was like, oh, yeah, I know what the next step is here. And the way that I used was so, I mean, everyone, I guess, says this that's sober now, but it was so obsessive and reckless that I, I just knew I was going to die, you know? Yeah. So that was that was the bottom. And I, you know, my mom uh, was sober at the time, which was such a gift. And I called her. I was, like, kicking at one of my drug buddies' house in Canoga Park, which is, like, one of the worst places to ever kick. And I mean, it's, it's one of those stories like out of the movies, but literally I was, you know, laying on the floor, there was no bed. And, um, I was taking all these prescription drugs and then there was like cockroaches all over the floor next to me. And I was too weak to get up and kill them. And it was like, Oh yeah, this is not, I'm not having this. And I called my mom and it was that one moment of clarity right there. And I just said, you know what? I think I'm ready. Cause she'd been waiting for that call for years, you know, trying to talk me into that call. Right. And I was like, someday I'm going to go, I'm going to get into recovery. I knew about it. I was familiar with that. There's help for people like me out there. And I was like, that's nice, but not yet. Right. It's still fun sometimes. And, um, but that was the call. And she was like, I'll never forget. She goes, are you, are you serious? I was like, yeah, just fucking do it make the call, do it. And two days later, I'm on a plane up there, you know, and that yeah, was... Yeah, so she found it for you, mm-hmm. the treatment? Yeah, I had my, la- my last drink and smoke in the parking lot of the treatment center. Wow. Yeah, like, I, they weren't going to let me in because I wouldn't go inside. I had more... I had bought a bunch of great beer at a liquor store up there. Like, I was really, in, you know, as much of a, like, a lush as I was. I, I used to go around parties and, like, drink. I would take... I would take like a paper towels or find some kind of like, you know, what do they call it? Like a strainer. And I would strain cigarette butts out of all the empties and I pour it in a bowl and make myself a pitcher of beer. I mean, that's like, that's how I really drink. But if I had money, I would buy good beer, you know? So I bought all these like micro brews and I, on the way there in my mom's car and I'm in the parking lot, just pounding these beers and I was just totally annihilated. And they would come out and they're like, dude, you're out. Like you can't be doing this or you're not coming in. And eventually, you know, I don't know. You ran out. No, I didn't run out. They just, you know, it was, I wanted it still. I was that cognizant that I could be like, all right, cool. So I went in and that was the last, that was the last one. And that was, I mean, I think the most profound experience of my life was I had toyed with spiritual ideas, you know, because my family had been going to India and I believe there was something there. I just didn't grow up with religion or church, so I didn't know what it was, but I believe there were saints and avatars and people that had some kind of spiritual power, so... I prayed to a couple of them a little bit, but not like in desperation and earnestness and that right. sort of that level of humility and desperation. And I woke up that morning and I, um, you know, I was unpacking my stuff or whatever. And I found a Valium in my bag just randomly that was accidentally there from a trip or something like that. And that was like such a sign that I, I got it. And I think I either went and told the counselor or I just went and flushed it down the toilet, but I didn't have the inclination to eat it. Right. Which was crazy yeah which at the time i was like wait what am i doing i just had a, i just found a valium yeah i just found 10 milligrams that'll make me feel way better right now and i was just not even an option and, and that morning i started to pray to whatever god is right. and i think from what i had learned in the movies of you get on your knees and put your hands together it was very awkward and yeah you know clumsy but i did it and from that moment until sitting here now almost 20 years later i've never once craved drugs or alcohol you know do you still pray oh my god and constantly on your knees like that? Uh, sometimes it's more. I think it's evolved into kind of more, more of an awareness. Yeah. You know, it's like a relationship more so than something that I bring in at certain times. It's just yeah. something that I try to keep kind of one finger on, so to speak. It's like on the way over here, I came from a great Kundalini yoga class, and I felt awesome. But still, coming over here, there's I'm walking into the unknown. I don't know you though that well. I right. don't know the building. I don't know what we're going to talk about. So right. there's there's always a certain degree of anxiety and undercurrent of that. And so anytime I feel any sort of tug of discomfort, it's always a reminder that I'm leaving that relationship with God, which to me just means um, having an awareness of something other than my, my solo being, right? Just me and what people think of me and what I think of me and my problems in the future and the past and just kind of um, maybe what some people call the now. 
Yeah. I think that's sort of the only place it's, there's some spiritual literature that says, you know, there's one who has all power. May you find him now. And um, I take that literally. Like it's the only right. place I can find that. So that's one of the big troubles I had actually in early sobriety is this idea that, okay, if you're going to be in a recovery program, it's all about God. That's what helps you. And I knew that that's what had saved me because I couldn't do it. Something clearly happened to me. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to be so arrogant, I think, to to be obsessed with drugs and alcohol. For me, it was from eight or nine years old until 26 years old. And all of a sudden, I, I, the only thing that changes, I start praying. I have this surrender. I get a modicum of humility, and I'm just willing to believe in something. And poof, it's just instantly gone. I mean, there's no way to deny that. But what I got kind of from you know going to meetings and, and, and just being in treatment is that the idea of God in recovery is that you pray in the morning, you get on your knees and you maybe say a set prayer and then you go live your life and then you come home at night and maybe you do a little writing, you know, take a little inventory and then you pray again before you go to bed. But there's a 12 hour block in there right. where you do whatever the hell you want and you burn your life to the ground through self-will and, you know, living by whatever principles you brought to your recovery. And so I had this kind of idea of bookend God or a sort of a pinch hitter God or an emergency God where, cool, when things go wrong, then I try to bring this thing in. Right. And that was a huge, um, I think, fault in my, in my own recovery for a long time. I didn't get that it's a relationship, that it's something that I have to keep continually building on. There's yeah. no, you hear sometimes around like, oh, these are like, they're spiritual maintenance. There's just things where you maintain your spiritual understanding or state of being but i if i just maintain life uh, goes past that it's like my problems or my perceived problems always sort of outgrow that maintenance so i have to be ahead of it you know it's like i have to have a preemptive sort of program where yeah. it's preventative medicine it's not yeah. medicine that i apply once i'm already all screwed up and in the disease and just neurotic and crazy it's like the only thing that's worked for me is really doing my best to stay in that state. And then the waves come and I get my ass kicked sometimes. And then I really, you know, pray my ass off because yeah, something yeah. bad happened. But I find that the periods of time in between the catastrophes it's are shorter. long. Or, well, the periods in between are longer. And then the duration of these little melodramas oh, yeah, that I yeah. have, they're, they're shorter. Yeah. You know, they're shorter. I'm just coming out of a particularly long one. Whoa. Wait, let now. me let me jump in because I have yeah. something really important to say, which is that the video of yours that I watched yesterday, where you literally said, "Yes, it's expensive to do these things I'm recommending, but so is having to go to the doctor when you get really sick," and it's exactly the same thing that you just said, really yeah. about your spirituality. So this is a, like a philosophy you apply to the advice you give in your career. Everything, yeah. I mean, it's all preventative. It's like, I mean, because I, when I got sober, I, I, I mean, I've explored so many different spiritual practices and been to India and learned to meditate and done all this stuff. And I've been really into health. So I sort of traded my addictions and obsessions that kill you for ones that give you longevity and a sense of well-being to the point of taking it too far right. where like I'm actually using that as a distraction rather than just doing the spiritual work. Because I've known people that eat really crappy GMO food, but they're very spiritually centered, so they tend to be physically healthy. And then I've been around a lot of people, like back when I first got into this stuff, and they're like in the raw vegan community, and nothing against people that are on that route. Whatever works for you, live and let live is my motto. But a lot of those people were so controlling and erotic about what they eat and condemning people that don't eat like them and things like that that they weren't really very healthy inside because there's such a rigid control mechanism. I think it's called orthorexia, you know, where you're oh, yeah. just totally obsessed about vitamins and supplements. And I've never been clinically diagnosed, but reading the definition of that, I'm like, oh yeah, I've definitely been, been through that. So I'm finding a little more balance, but... What about an exercise addiction if you work out every single morning? Do you think that well, that's... I don't myself, like when I say I work out every morning, I do some sort of movement mm -hmm. protocol. So it's not like, trust me, I'm not, I mean, you look at me, <laughs> knows me, I'm not like in, in super great shape. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm 45. I've never been into exercise at all. Like I hate exercise. But women, oh, sorry. It doesn't matter what women yeah. like. What's more appealing is yeah. like a sort of thin frame that's not than, than like big muscly. Well, you know, uh, women that I've, 
had relationships with, they have not seemed displeased, you know? Uh, I did have one that was like, you know, you should start working out. It'd be awesome if you had muscles. I was like, that's what you're supposed to think. You don't like tell a guy that. No, that's like telling no. a girl, you know, I really prefer women without saddlebags, but yours are great. Yeah, no, um, no, no, no. But, no. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think for someone like me who's so obsessive and just extreme about everything that, yeah, even something positive like yeah. exercise or yoga or even meditating your way and levitating out of this world and not being of service to, you know, the planet and to the people on it is, is in other words, like everything can be an escape. So there really is a fine line there between where does being healthy and loving myself and caring for myself and wanting to be spiritually and physically and mentally and emotionally fit and sexually fit, financially fit. Fit yeah, and sober in all those areas. Where does that end, and where does becoming, you know, a perfectionist and being totally neurotic and obsessed and using all those things as an escape begin? Yeah. So this is this has been my challenge. Is like I find something like taking ice baths. I'm like, I found the key to the universe, right. and then that's all I think about. That's all I talk about, and that's all I want to do. And then my friends kind of get bored of that, and they're like, you know, we're right. kind of we don't want to hear about it anymore. I go, oh wow, I didn't realize that. Okay. So it's always, you know, the pendulum for me is swinging one way or the other and it's bringing myself back into a balance and, and I'm getting there. It's, it's been fun to explore these things, but know that I'm still going to die. It's like, I don't care how much goddamn wheatgrass you take when you're like tickets up, you're out of here and yeah. you're going to leave this body behind and go on to wherever you go. So, but it's not about escaping death. It's about living as well. Well, as it is. Can. I mean, that's always, that's kind of my little theme of the stuff that I do. It's, it's not how long you live. It's how well you yeah. live, you know, and, and that's really the goal. I, I don't want to be a decrepit old man full of disease. I, I really think it's possible to live without these degenerative diseases. I, I don't, I don't think that humans, and if you go back into history, into, you know, studying hunter gatherer people and indigenous peoples before Western industrial industrialization, yeah. People didn't have the disease we have. So it's it's all environmental. And it's all based on diet. So yeah, I, I, I want to be healthy. And if I know I'm going to die, I would rather get hit by a bus, crash an airplane, die in my sleep. I don't want to suffer. I want to use... I know. I want to use this vehicle for all it's worth while I'm here for my spiritual evolution because you need a body to grow spiritually, at least on this plane. As far as you know. Yeah. Well, here, you yeah. know, once you leave, who knows what happens, but... But wait a second. So yeah. the, the thing is, if you're going to treat yourself this well, then you could live to be like 101 and die of a degenerative disease, totally. even though <laughs> totally. you've lived so well. Yeah. So maybe what you're doing is preventing yourself from being able to be taken out before the degenerative you know disease. What? That's quite possible. And I think, you know, I can't, I guess I'm 45. I'm, you know, yeah, you start to think so about I'm, this you know, stuff. I'm I, maybe halfway through with this, this round yeah. and, uh, you know, you do think about it and I don't know the way I feel right now, I don't have a huge problem with the idea of leaving here. Right. It's aging. That's worse than dying. Yeah, don't you exactly. think? Exactly. That's, that's kind of the point. And, yeah. um, and I don't, you know, I don't know how much you can do for the aging either, but I think it depends on on you know how you contextualize your life like what the purpose is and what the purpose of my life is is to evolve and it's to grow and so I look at it like I'm given this rental vehicle this meat suit this skin suit and uh, a certain sort of karmic propensity to meet certain people like maybe meeting you and then mm -hmm. you meet someone and you marry them and then you have a kid and you know your best friend you might have been with them for a thousand lifetimes you know you just you just don't know right but everything seems to be set up for my own greater good and my own evolution and so you know as it relates to the body you can't be sick spiritually and mentally and emotionally and then have a healthy body and have a good life you have mm -hmm. to have a little bit of both but the vehicle has to be strong in order to carry the spirit through these experiences mm -hmm. so as i said i've you know i've had a lot of lessons in the past three months about based around relationships of the romantic nature and i just got my ass kicked it's been so very what challenging you were in a long-term relationship well, <laughs> I don't know how much I, how much I want to go into it. Yeah, it, you know, let's keep it on recovery. It's, 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 not like, like, it's not like I'm, you know, famous or anything. I don't know how many people hear this. I don't mean to, you know, make myself be too important, but to protect, you know, the the um, we don't need names. privacy of others. But how do I say it? You got hurt. I did. I hurt myself. Right. I hurt myself. I ignored some experience from the past with different people. And I ignored some level of intuition that said, like, you probably shouldn't be doing this. But... I felt my heart start to open mm -hmm. and someone happened to be there and I started to really care about that person. And, um, I don't know that it was, well, you know, I don't, I, I don't think it was a mistake or a bad move. I think that both of us probably um, benefited from it in the end, but it was painful because 
I think I was ready to take my level of relationship to a more intimate, deeper place. And um, I think the person that happened to be there maybe wasn't in the same place, mm-hmm. you know, in their life. Mm-hmm. And so um, the pain came from realizing that and then having to undo that attachment and mm-hmm. even some level, I think, of addiction there. Mm-hmm. And so the lesson for me is always about attachment. I mean, it's attachment to the company that I think I own, right. to the car that I think I own, to the apartment I think I own, to the family that I think is my family. It's all attachment. You know, it's all what we would call um, in recovery dependencies. You know, it's like yeah. when that dependency shifts from my relationship with God higher power and it starts to get attached to a body or a person or a title or being spiritual or whatever a sobriety date or being a certain age yeah totally yeah or having looks it's like i look in the mirror now and i I mean i don't know i've i I'm sure I've been fairly vain at some points, but I, I feel like I'm an okay looking guy. Like you're I've been, I've been told my life, wow, you're really handsome. Okay, cool. So I'm not ugly, but you know, I sometimes look in the mirror and I go, Oh shit, dude. Like I'm an old looking guy now, you know, or you see, you see a picture. No, I'm, I'm not like being falsely modest. I'm saying that I do, I have an attachment to how I looked when I was 30 and I look at a picture and I go, Oh man, yeah, I don't look like that now. It's interesting. I'm like, you know, getting a couple gray hairs and the hair's thinning a little. And I see, I do have some degree of attachment to my self-worth as it's attached yeah. to being from the time I was three years old. Oh, you're so handsome. Wow. What a good looking boy. You know, right, and right, right. people wanting me to model and this kind of stuff. You're like, Oh, okay. I guess the world sees me in this way. So I'm going to see me in this way. Yeah. But if I'm basing my self-worth and my value on this meat suit, on this shell, <laughs> I'm in for a rude awakening because yeah. this thing is going to degrade and then it's going away. So I yeah. have to have something a deeper anchor than that. Yeah. And this is, you know, it's interesting having dated a lot of women that thankfully were externally very beautiful. And I have noticed that as their, their looks tend to decline a little bit, that their sense of self and their sense of value and worth starts to really be challenged because that's what they've been hanging on to. You know, I wonder how much that's a, an LA thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I've lived here, you know, since 89, how many years that is. So I'm sure I've seen more of that, you know, than than might be present in some other cultures. I talked to my mom about it. And, you know, my mom is really beautiful, but she's 74, which looks like I told you, like 50. And she and everyone I really know who's older says, you just feel better and better. You just do. And I think about that because I'm, you know, in obsession over my age. One good thing for me, this is the greatest thing. I didn't know it. I was like 25 pounds heavier when I was in my like 20s and 30. So I'm like, oh, I look better now. Like that's just a fact. So I, this is an argument to be heavier so that you don't have to like go through that. I realize that the real argument is to have a deeper spiritual connection where, you know, you're not attached as you yeah. say in the meat suit. But that's, mine's the Band-Aid version. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is... <laughs> This is the struggle of, of human life. I think not just sobriety is, for me at least, I can't speak for other people, is really building a sense of self-worth and self-acceptance about who I am. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I just am seeing more and more. I'm sober, you know, almost 20 years. And I think at various times I've pr- had my shit together pretty well in terms of my recovery and how I treat people and my ability to help people and be of service and, and, and contribute positive energy and actions to the world. But every time I go through, you know, hit a couple of roadblocks and go through some pain, it's like, hmm, let me have a look. And I see, oh, my God, I still have such an undercurrent of shame and struggle with like my own self-worth and value in the world, even after all this time and all the work that I've done, you know, and that's where that that real connection with God, that real relationship that I keep referring to, that's where that counts because it's like in the eyes of the thing that created me, I really can connect with the fact that I'm absolutely perfect. And even if I made a mistake or I hurt someone or I sent the fucking email that I knew I shouldn't have sent and then I'm like, oh, you asshole, dude, you're 19 years sober. You just did that? Seriously? You know, that self-critical voice that I, for most of my life has been not only inward but outward. Mm -hmm. And it's been relatively easy for me to not condemn other people and put them down and judge them because I'm just I have a a very strong witness state going a lot of the time Mm -hmm. where I'm very aware of my thoughts Mm -hmm. and when a foreign can be very painful when a foreign invading thought comes in or an enemy soldier as Emmett Fox calls it comes in like fuck that guy it's like oh no 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 I mean I just am not going to take the bait yeah but it's so much more insidious when those when that self-talk or that opinion is turned around toward myself yeah. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it's crazy. It's like 
I recently, you know, through talking to a couple of my friends and just having them get really honest with me, I discovered like other people value me and view me as such like a more magnificent being than I can ever connect with myself. Right. You know, and it's just so crazy how even after all this time and all the work that's been done, it's still hard to actually own who I am. And I, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but just in a humble way. You know, humility has two sides. It's something I never knew, too. I thought if you're humble, it means that you don't brag and you don't boast and you're not egotistical and puff your chest up and, you know, show off your cool car or dress all fucking rad or whatever. Right. And so that you're not too big for your britches, but it's also not being too small for your britches. You know, it's also not thinking um, too little of oneself and having too much of a you know, uh, identification with the lower self or the smaller self and, and actually owning my self-worth, you know, becoming yeah. right-sized, as they say. Right-sized doesn't not, it doesn't only mean don't get too big. It means yeah. don't get too small. Well, and it's like the way that insecurity, you know, can manifest itself is like, you know, braggadocious or deeply insecure. Right, right. You know, the yeah, flip yeah, yeah. of the same thing. Yeah. Or anger and sadness, right. you know, flip of the same thing. Yeah. Oh, God, I had something important to say about about self-worth, about, um, oh, God, it's like it was there and now it's far away. When he, so here's another thing. So when you suffered, like in this recent past, was that connection that you talk about having all day whenever you're uncomfortable, was it just not as present because you had gotten more attached to a person than? Well, I think that's true to a degree. Yeah. You know what? When you're around someone that makes you feel really good, oxytocin. <laughs> You know, when you're around someone that, and you're very affectionate and especially in a relationship that for me, that's sexually very charged and there's a lot of chemistry, the other things that you normally do to feel good, you don't need like helping other people, like, you know, calling guys that you, you mentor or you work with and really, you know, having a focus beyond serving and, and giving rather than receiving. Yeah. It's like the desperation to do those things gets a little less. And so I think, I think to a degree I kind of got cozy, but it was also part of my spiritual past. So it was very easy to, I don't know if justify is the right word, but it didn't like alarm me, even though I had an awareness that I was going pretty deep into my little domestic bubble of pleasure because I'm one that's always been very protective of my heart. And I really don't love people easily in relationships. You know, I've been, I've really protected myself and I've had a lot of enmeshment issues growing up. And I mean, I'm, terrified of women and getting hurt by them or trapped by them or betrayed by them. And it's an issue that I've been working on for a long time. So to me, it was like, okay, cool. So I'm, I may be doing a little less of some of the practices that I normally do to stay connected. And I'm really using this relationship as a spiritual tool to open my heart and to learn how to be vulnerable and to be intimate and grow in that but way. But is that a justification? Well, that's the thing. Who knows? And, you know, at the in the end, I think it's both. I think that I was kind of hiding and, you know, putting my head in the sand and just, you know, being swallowed up by this pleasure, you know, that I had not experienced in a long time because I was single for two years. And I, I think I went on, I dated one person for two weeks or something in that period, if you can call it dating. So mm-hmm. I'd had a long time by myself to really process and, and look at, you know, my shit. And, when I started to open, I, I, I did it consciously, even though I knew there were risks involved because of the dynamic that was present uh, there. But I think that it was still good. You know, even if yeah. even if I was hiding out, it's 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 not about for me. It's it's not about what I do. It's like more about the intention. You know, it's yeah. like, why did I get into that situation? You know, was it just because I want to get laid? No, like I know how to do that. That's right. not that hard for most people, you know. But maybe the reason was had more to do with really solidifying that what you want is something more permanent. Totally. Yeah. You know? And I've and, never, and, I've never yeah. really wanted that. Yeah. And I you mean, had to go through pain to learn something that important. Yeah, totally. And, and now it's, it's interesting because what's happened is, you know, what's so weird about this particular one is I guess you could say I was hurt or I, you know, I got myself into a, a situation in which I experienced pain. Right. And I chose that situation. I did it knowingly. But what's crazy about it is rather than walking out of it with like a lower sense of self-worth, I actually have really taken ownership of who I am and the person that I've built. And so I have much more self-esteem, you know, having a couple months to sort of heal from the initial like scar, you know. I really feel good about myself now and I have a certain standard for myself of my own behavior because I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I was very selfish and, 
and I think also it's to some degree not really honest, you know, I think my integrity suffered um, because I wanted something and I wanted that experience. And so I could have been more open and honest uh, with who I was, you know, there was some fear motivating me to be a little less than, than honest and not honest, like, oh, I'm telling you, you know, that I didn't steal the $10 out of your purse. Like that honesty is easy, but honest just in terms of where I was in the relationship and what I felt that I could contribute and what I couldn't and that kind of thing. But coming out of it, I feel really good about myself. And I have not only a a higher standard of excellence for myself, but for anyone that I'm going to be in a relationship with. Right. Because I got to experience kind of a side of a romantic relationship that I hadn't experienced in a while. One that was very fulfilling physically and in different ways like that but maybe some of the other areas of compatibility were lacking i've had other relationships where we were highly compatible in a lot of different areas but maybe not so much physically or sexually and so i have a a much more well-rounded vision of what i'd like to manifest in a relationship now and that i would like to have some degree of compatibility and connection on all those levels instead of selling myself short because i used to have this belief system that like you get with a good girl and she's great to you and you have a great relationship, but it's not going to be passionate and you just have to deal with that. Yeah. And if you get one where you have a higher degree of passion, then they can't be a good person and, you know, have morals and be a virtuous, trustworthy woman. You know, like you either get one or the other, which is a really fucked up way to view the world. A very limiting belief system. Well, the passion does fade. Of course. Of course. You know, yeah. and, you know, I think the problem with for some of us is that we associate that passion with a little bit of unavailability so that that's what we're conditioned to believe is attractive. Do you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Yeah, so, for sure. And that's I a mean, really yeah, tough thing to break. If it's not dangerous, it's not sexy. <laughs> right. You know, that's that, that's that, you know, that emotional twist. You know? Yeah, but I mean, I think some people just don't have that. Yeah. You know? Oh, I know guys, it's like, I have guys that I, that I work with, you know, and, and they're, I mean, look at the way that they relate to the world and to women and sex and relationships. And they're just so normal. It's like they don't overvalue their sexuality, which is something I've done a lot. I mean, I've been very motivated by that because of a couple of different things. Validation for it. Yeah. The approval and the validation. Oh, if I can get that girl, that means I'm worth something because look how pretty she is or, or just the pleasure seeking, like the addictive quality of sex and turn on and arousal right. and all of that stuff. But yeah, I, I know guys that are just, they seem to be inherently balanced in that way. Yeah. And I find that they're usually guys, you know, this is no shock I'm sure, to anyone, but they grew up with healthy relationships yeah, and they, with their parents. Yeah. And their parents yeah. are still like one guy I work with in particular, his parents have been married, you know, since the stone age and yeah. he, you know, he's got a big, um, he's Jewish Persian family, you know, very strong family bonds and ties and they do all these holiday dinners together and all that stuff, you know, and I look at that and it's like, I almost, when I first started working with him, because I kind of coach him and I almost was like, man, I got to get this guy away from his family. This seems dysfunctional. He goes over there every Friday night and has some religious dinner. This must be like wrong. And then I realized when he comes home, he's very happy. He doesn't get screwed up when he goes and spend times with his family. Yeah. And it seemed like dysfunctional to me because I'm so so dysfunctional in terms of my relationship in my childhood with my family. We didn't do that stuff. Yeah. There's no boundaries. Everyone was just insane. So it's like, no wonder I've really had to work on relationships, you know. I had a really divorced parents and really, I think, you know, unhealthy relationships with both my parents. And, you know, is it improved in recovery? Well, it's funny. You know, my relationship with my dad has improved vastly because he's also in recovery. And so we're just the best of friends, you know, in a healthy way, not in like a emotional incest, like my dad's my best friend kind of in a gross way, but, um, we're really, really tight. And unfortunately, and very sadly, my mom and I have sort of drifted apart in my sobriety and I'm, I'm open and willing to exploring that relationship, but that willingness, um, is sort of one-sided for whatever reason right now, you know, which is sad. And that's something I've had to kind of accept. And hopefully someday that, that can be there, you know? Yeah. But that's, Throughout my childhood, I was the only child raised by my mom. I had two uh, half brothers with on my dad's side later, but I mean, it's like textbook stuff going back of you know having a mom that was not in recovery <laughs> during my childhood, yeah. and you know, just, yeah, all that all that stuff, you know, and sexual abuse not from my mom, thankfully, but in other areas and um, all that stuff. So 
that's I think why at this point in in my own recovery and evolution, the relationship stuff is just front and center yeah. because it's like, wow, dude, you really need to face this shit. There's a lot of work still to be done in that area. Yeah. If I want to have a fulfilling, deep, meaningful connection with someone, which, like I said, for the first time in my life, I really do. I see the value in that as a spiritual tool for evolution. You know, there's an interesting thing in a, there's a book called um, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which some of your listeners might be familiar Mm -hmm. with, um, referred to often as the 12 and 12. And Mm -hmm. there's a line in there in one of the 12 steps, which is in the fourth step. And it says, it doesn't say it's from drinking a lot of alcohol that we ruined our lives. It says, and I'm going to try to quote this verbatim, says it is from our twisted relations with our friends, family and society at large that most of us or that we have suffered the most. Yep. I mean, think about that. It says the most means yeah. more than anything yeah. I've suffered from twisted relationships with friends, family, and society at large, meaning how I relate to human beings out there in the world. So it's like what I'm finding is relationships. That's it. That's everything. Our relationship right now with one another, this is everything. This right. is where the change really happens. And for many years in my growth, I was meditating, you know, twice a day for 20 minutes and then, you know, going to spiritual groups and going to 90 minutes of yoga. Then I go to the park and listen to a spiritual audiobook for two hours and not make any money and not, you know, contribute to my relationship with my girlfriend. I was like hiding out in spirituality, thinking, well, I'm supposed to be spiritual. No, you want to be spiritual? Like Ram Dass says, if you want to see if you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you want to see if you're spiritual, get a girlfriend, get a boyfriend, Yeah. you know, move in together. You'll find out how Zen you are really quick, you know? Yeah. But there are other ways to test it. Well, all of those other things also support that. So if I didn't spend those years so devoted to meditation and my program and doing all the things I've done and all the health stuff and everything. Yeah. I wouldn't be the guy now that I think is close to being capable, hopefully of having a really meaningful, long lasting relationship. Right. So it did take getting out of society kind of, and out of those relationships in order to come back in and be able to bring myself fully and be willing to be vulnerable and, um, and truly intimate with someone. And which is not to say that your philosophy is that, those in long-term relationships are all very spiritually fit. No, I mean, relationships, like the quote that I just gave, I mean, they're some of the most damaging uh, things that we ever encounter. I mean, I've had relationships that just destroyed me, and I've hurt so many people throughout my life despite my best intentions, you know? I mean, I think a lot of people in relationships that they are unable to find means to get out of probably ruin their life for the most part i think getting stuck in in a relationship that's not working is such a waste of your life it's it's like it's just like an addiction you know it's taking a lifetime and just living on the street as a drunk i mean it's like god you're given this this shot in this version of you right this time around it's just god you couldn't get out of that and it's the same thing someone that's been married for 30 years and they hate each other and they stay together because of financial reasons or the kids or whatever it is i mean I hope that I'm never in a relationship that's not fulfilling to both parties and that's not contextualized as a way to grow individually by coming together, you know? And and those people who wait past the traditional time for that are often doing, I think, a lot of the growth that's going to help prevent that. Yeah, that's that's me. I mean, I've had a couple long term relationships, but for for, it's like I got sober at 26. Right. So I consider that the day I got born. Yeah. And now I'm probably developmentally. I'm like a teenager right now at 45, you know, where, yeah, I think if somebody grows up and they're they're well adjusted and have a healthy family, it's probably normal to your late 20s, early 30s to find a mate and settle down and domesticate and have a couple kids and have a life. It's just I experienced like my sexual liberation and being single throughout most of my thirties. You know, I was single forever and just dated like crazy and had an amazing time and, you know, did the best I could to be very honest about my intentions and would date people and tell them, yeah, I'm not having kids. I'm not getting married. I'm the guy you have fun with while you're out looking for a husband. Are you in or out? Right. I'm cool either way. You want a husband? Bye. Yeah. Next. You want to have some fun because you just got a relationship? I'm your guy. Right. And I played that out until it, you know, got Stop really working. old. Yeah. yeah, it got really old. Uh, but it was a necessary progression to get to the point now where I'm like, you want to be monogamous? Okay, I yeah. can do that. I couldn't have done that at 35. And I wouldn't have. There's just yeah. no way. Yeah. I had to 
try open relationships and try we all of these yeah. different things that like seem like a good idea in theory, right? Because mm-hmm. we're not meant to be monogamous, really. Humans just aren't, period. Have you read Sex at Dawn? I'm yeah, sure of course. Yeah. You know, that was like when I was like, oh, perfect. Yeah. I'm never getting married. This is awesome. Yeah. But I had, you know, I wouldn't say I was necessarily polyamorous in the official sense but i definitely had open relationships and dated multiple people and they dated each other and did some crazy stuff and um definitely have explored a lot sexually and uh you know now i'm i'm at a place where none of that really is appealing to me because i don't think for me it actually works Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know but i had to go through that so Mm -hmm. yeah at 45 is it now i'm thinking well wow, maybe I could have a kid. It's like, well, shit, when's that going to happen? Maybe, you know, I meet someone now. I'm not going to move in with them and have a kid in a year. So when's that happen when I'm 50? You know, then you think about shit. When I'm 60, they're going to be 10. Yeah. When they're in high school, I'm going to look like their grandpa. That's kind of weird. Right, right. So these are the things that, that yeah. happen. But I don't I don't argue with my life. I've, I've turned my will in my life over to a higher sense of intelligence, the unseen hand, call it God, whatever you want. And I'm doing that on an ongoing basis. So I'm really not in charge. I'm almost like a robot that's just constantly going, okay, whatever you want universe. Cause I've really come to a deep understanding that when I use my intellect, the limited <laughs> intellect that I have, and I'm not being self deprecating. It's just any human being that doesn't identify that their intellect is highly limited is a fucking retard period to me mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i mean the most brilliant minds in recorded history have identified that they only know so much you mm-hmm. know and 10 percent of the brain that the universe is vastly more intelligent yeah be it god nature whatever you want to call it but i've proven again and again that my approach to life in and of myself being self-directed using my own will and my own instincts is a life of destruction and pain for me and anyone else that i'm involved with on any level you know so there's a deeper and deeper surrender all the time to a higher intelligence and a, and a deeper sense of, of love, not just a romantic love for you or for a girl or a friend or mommy or daddy, but actually loving the experience of life and accepting the experience of life, even when it's treacherous and I want to die, is still finding, okay, there's a purpose to all of this, you know? Because without, without a sense of meaning, I mean, it's like, how do you go on? How do you make it through without drinking or without offing yourself or without sabotaging your business or your finances or just self-destructing? I don't know how anyone can do that without some connection to something else that gives your life the context that it's a lesson, you know? So it's like, okay, cool. I'm in the third grade in the school of life and you get your ass kicked a lot in the third grade because you're not tough yet, you know, and I'm going to make it through the third grade and then the fourth grade is going to be a little more pleasurable. And, and that's what's happened. You know, every year that I've been sober and working on myself, it's life hurts less and less. Mm-hmm. It really does. It really does. And also because I, I'm becoming more willing and courageous to surrender into uncomfortable feelings and emotions. You know, in this last three months, the first month and even two I was so uncomfortable in my skin most of the day. And there were a lot of tears. There was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of uh, self-punishment mentally. There was a lot of self-talking, very busy mind. And I would just sit and allow those feelings and experiences to happen rather than running to shopping, running to pornography, running to dating someone new, you know, running to driving fast or drinking a bunch of coffee or whatever your bag is of escape, you know, running up the credit cards, just everything I've ever used to change the way I feel systematically, they've all kind of stopped working. Right. Right. And so it's like to the point where, okay, what if I just didn't do anything to get away from these feelings at all and just literally sit on my couch and just fully dive into the experience of feeling what I would call pain and not even calling it that. Yeah, just going calling wow. it, like Jeff says, discomfort. Yeah, exactly. I have a sensation. Yeah, and a lot of this I got from Jeff. Because I'd yeah. call him and he'd be like, why, why don't you try this? Don't run. Yeah. Just sit and feel that weight in your chest that you call pain or hurt. And why don't you just allow that to wash through you? And, and I've done that a lot and it's, it's pretty incredible. And I think that's why, as I said, I'm, I'm kind of coming out of this little growth period. And I'm sure there's going to be many more with a sense of self-respect. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and value because I, I actually feel really good about myself for facing this and owning my part of it. Yeah. And I mean, not only to myself, but to the other people involved saying, hey, like, 
I need to let you know what I did to contribute to this situation not working out. Yeah. And maybe even <laughs> honest to a fault because it's been, you know, held against me in some cases. And, and then there was and, that email. And later, like, you know, yeah, and then there was the email and later brought back up, like, well, you remember you already admitted you did yeah. this, so I'm going to use that now and backhand you with it again. But, um, you know, it's fine. It's fine. I know that I've looked inside and I've... I've been honest with myself and with other people about what I've done to contribute to something not working out. And this is a, it's a great way to live rather than being a victim, you know, because in victimhood, I have zero power, zero power. Yeah. Taking responsibility is the ultimate freedom, which is like, it makes you feel good about yourself too. It's like, you know what? I made some mistakes, but at least I'm big enough to admit that shit. And the likelihood of me making that same mistake is much less having admitted it looked at it put it on the table shared it with other people next time i have that inclination or my ego says oh do this or do that or my instincts flare up i think i'll probably have the wherewithal or at least a much better chance to be like "Mm, nope not going there i'm not going to do it i won't take the bait i'm going to listen to my gut and my gut says dude you're making the wrong move here it's not the job for you this isn't the company that's not the partner that's not the girlfriend don't date this person don't have sex with this person don't do this don't do that to feel that subtle charm that subtle tug and actually honor that that intuitive voice right right we have to wrap up that was i'm sorry i am not just saying that this has been a fantastic conversation I don't know if it's been a conversation so much. Once you get me started so on this yeah, topic, you're Anna. You're a talker. No, seriously, dude. This topic, and my friends would say, uh, no, it's every topic. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't know you were such a talker. Well. But, but here's the thing. Privately, I'm normally not. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I am a very self-obsessed person who really likes to contribute in a conversation. And I, you, what you were saying was so interesting. I didn't really care at all that you were talking so much i understand it was fascinating (laughs) it really was i understand both sides of that and and thank you and you know and to anyone listening if they're like well let her say something i did not mean to dominate no they hear me way too much but this is i mean if there's anything i'm excited about in my life this is it i mean you hit like the passion thread that is everything and especially just for where i am right now i'm just i'm having a lot of realizations and so i'm I'm very fervent on this. Whereas like in a month from now, I want to talk about entrepreneurship and business and, you know, these inner lessons and all this stuff might not be at the forefront like it is. Yeah, I get, I get you. We're, we're wrapping up. We're done. All right. So that was Luke's story on After Party Pod. If you liked this episode, go to lukestory.com. Also go rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast because... It will help other people discover it. And I love it. And I love it when you guys email me. So feel free to keep doing that. You can reach me, Anna, at theafterpartygroup.com. And I, I will talk to you soon.